Oh, indeed, you are amazing, God. Fill us with the knowledge of who you are that we may exalt and magnify and worship and praise you and be exalted this morning. Speak through me and through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Get your Bibles out. Turn to Psalm 34 real quick. The middle of the, of the Bible. I just read it to you. Let me give you the context. While you're looking for that, let me give you the context. This is a psalm written by David. Uh, David is on the run. King Saul is jealous and trying to take his life. At this point in time in David's life, he has lost uh, shelter. He has lost uh, his friend Jonathan. He has lost, in terms of, you really can't have a relationship with him anymore. He's lost his wife. Okay? There have been several attempts on his life. And he is on the run. And so he has just taken that consecrated bread that we talked about, that was reserved, you know, about the, observing the Sabbath. And he did that. In order to get that, he had to lie to the priest. And that would come back and haunt him because that would cost the priest his life later on. He's just taking the sword of Goliath, and now he's on the run. And he, he has nowhere to turn to, so he goes to the very enemy of Israel's, which is the Philistines and King Achish. But when he's there, he realizes that Saul isn't the real threat to the king. It was David, because David had killed Goliath. And so he's afraid now. And he feigns, or he, he pretends to be insane, and then he is set free. And he goes, and he is living in a cave. And he's at one of the lowest points in his life. And this is when Psalm 34 was written. And look how it starts out. I will bless the Lord at all times. In those circumstances, where is this guy's mind? And so he calls people to to bless the Lord. Then then he appeals to God and praises God as a deliverer. Look at verse 4. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. So we know he's dealing with fear. They look to him and were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. So this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues to them. There's God to deliver, and he's praising God for his deliverer in those circumstances. Then he praises God as his provider. Look at verse 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. Now, David is in a position of want, he has no food. Okay. Oh, fear the Lord, you who saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. Verse 10. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good things. So he's saying that the Lord does not want his people to be in want, right? You see that? And this is why in the midst of this incredible dire circumstances, this is an incredible psalm because it's a psalm of praise. 
praising God as a deliverer and as a provider. And then he has an invitation to everybody, which is really the point, and that's verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. But the Lord is good. That is the testimony. That is the invitation. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And he's going to tie it into, because the verses 9 and 10 talk about provision, not being in want. I want you to keep that in mind as we go through the rest of this sermon. Because you're going to see that that is never God's intention for his children to ever be in want. And you're going to see what the original creation, just a picture of it this Sunday, was like. And hopefully you'll see how awful this place is that we live in right now. This is a fraction of the goodness of God that was originally intended for us. And I hope that this gives you hope for what lies ahead. So turn to Genesis chapter 2. Look at verses 4 through 7 this morning. In the very beginning, Genesis 2, 4 through 7. It says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. If you just look at verse 4 there, which is where we will start. Literally, the Hebrew says this. These are the generations of the heavens and earth when they were created. So we're talking about the beginning of the story of the generations of mankind. So this is not a second conflicting account of creation as some arrive to logically, they say, when they read the first chapter of Genesis and come to the second chapter. It's not a second conflicting account. It's a detailed breakdown of the last half of day six. So for those of you that like outlines, this is basically it. Because I've got to clear up this confusion when it comes to just reading this at a superficial level. We're talking about the last half of day six when God created man and woman. So from Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 2-3, that is the complete creation narrative. So you would want to read it that way. And from Genesis 2-4 to the end of the book, Revelation, and the end of time, that is the generations of man. Now we're going to get into what has been a fascinating and confusing problematic uh, two verses. We're going to bring some clarity to some, few, some confusion. When you read verses 5 and 6, here it is. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Verse 6, but a mist used to rise from the earth... And water the whole surface of the ground. This is a confusing two verses and it creates problems. Because verse 4 tells us that we're talking about what? The generations of man. Verse 7 tells us about the creation of man. 
Verse 5 tells us there was no vegetation. See that? (coughs) Excuse me. There was no shrub or plant. Well, why? Because the Lord had not sent rain. Well, if there's no vegetation on the earth, then are we talking about day two then? Does that make sense? And didn't we just read that God created vegetation on day three? I thought we were talking about day six, right? So I just told you when man was created. But what vegetation did not exist on earth until rain fell from the sky? What's that talking about? And didn't man begin cultivating the earth after the fall, after Adam and Eve sinned? And yet there's still no vegetation until there is rain? And speaking of rain, didn't we learn that rain doesn't appear in the earth until when? Noah and the flood. Genesis 7 mentions that's the first mention of rain other than right here in Genesis. And wasn't that roughly 1,500 years after the creation of man when we studied this last year? Now we believe that that about rain because verse 6 tells us what? A mist rises from the earth and waters the ground in that first society before the flood. And is this mist like the dew of the morning that we see in the ground today? How many of you thought that? I have thought that, that that's what was happening. A dew was forming, okay? I have a, a few honest people here. They're, okay, yeah. Whatever you thought about that, what, what does this mean? Okay? And so these two verses confuse a lot of people, including myself. But I've learned over the years that my ignorance on difficult Bible passages is just really a result of a superficial study. And if I take the time and put the effort in, do the hard work of deeper study, I always discover this, a sound biblical explanation that inevitably lifts my understanding to a greater appreciation of God. So in order for me to understand these two confusing verses, and then hopefully to explain it to you, I have to go back to commentaries written by men who know more about the Bible than I do. Particularly men who know the original Hebrew language. And one of the finest minds on the original Hebrew text of Genesis is a Jewish man by the name of Umberto Casuto. I've mentioned him before, but he's a Hebrew scholar. He's written on the Hebrew text of Genesis, and he's originally written in the Hebrew language, his commentary. So this guy knows... Hebrew, he's a Jew, he understands how Jews think, and Hebrews think, and so on. So as we come to verse 5, Casuto gives us some very helpful insights. He says that verse 5 does begin with day 6, okay? Verse 5 is not referencing day 2 or 3. And that verse 5 is not saying there weren't any plants or trees, because there were. And when were they created? Day 3, okay? And the plants and trees created on day three, now watch this, didn't need rain or man to till the ground. I got your attention now. So, whatever shrubs and plants are on the field, they are not the plants and trees of day three. Instead, they are something else. And to understand what they are, how do we find out what they are? You've got to go to the original meaning in the Hebrew of what these words mean. 
and how they are used elsewhere in the Bible. Now, the word for shrub, as it says in verse 5, is the Hebrew word, and it sounds like seahawk. But it's S-I-Y-A-C-H. It's siak. So to wake you up, because this is a technical part of the sermon, say with me, siak. Siak. You get seahawk in one sense, but it's siak. That's the shrub. That's the original Hebrew word, siak. Now, the word for plant in Hebrew is the word eseb. E-S-E-B. Say for me, eseb. Eseb. Siak. Siak is the shrub. Eseb is the plant. Okay? And actually, siak, it literally means shrubbery or bush. Okay? Whenever I think of shrubbery, I think of Monty Python's The Holy Grail. But it means shrubbery or bush. Okay? Eseb, it, it comes from a word that means to glisten, like the glistening green grass, but really it just means herbs. Herbs. Okay? So, siak is what? Shrubs. Eseb is herbs. Very good. Now watch this. So shrubs and herbs had not sprung up yet. You see? Well, why? What does the text say? They were dependent upon what? Rain, which had not come for over 1,500 years, and man had not begun to cultivate the ground, or we'd say it's till the ground. Now, what does cultivate the ground mean? It means to till, like till the soil. Now, when did man begin to till the soil or or cultivate the ground? After the fall, and that's recorded in Genesis chapter 3. So whatever these shrubs and herbs are, they're dependent on rain and depend on the tilling of the soil, which both come after the fall. Thus, it's right to say in verse 5, they weren't on the earth. Does that make sense? Okay, let's go back to our Hebrew scholar, Kasuto, and he writes this. When the verse declares that these species were missing, missing, the meaning is that these kinds were lacking, but not other kinds. And that's exactly the point. There were plenty of plants and trees, as indicated back on day three, available for man as food. But these two particular two, these two, they were not in existence at that time. So there were no shrubs and no herbs. You know, you'll understand why. So a lot of people are like, oh, I didn't know that. Now, does the Bible give us any more information as to exactly what the shrubs and herbs are? Well, it does. Let's talk about shrubs and plants. I never thought as a pastor I'd talk about shrubs and plants. So, again, I go back to Kisudo, and he writes this. If we wish to understand the significance of the Siak, and what's the Siak? Shrubs. Of the field in the Eseb. What's the Eseb? Of the field in the context of our narrative, then we need to glance at the end of the story. It's stated there in the words addressed by the Lord God to Adam after he sinned. What did God say to Adam? Turn to Genesis 3.18. I don't have any verses up, up here, so you're going to have to do a little bit of work this morning. But it's got to go over one other page, Genesis chapter 3, verse 18. All right? Both, verse 18, 
and the cursed Adam, both thorns and thistles that shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. So because of the fall, what's man going to have to do, and include all of us, men and women, we're going to have, what, thorns and thistles, and we're going to eat the plants of the field. But guess what the word plant is there? Eseb. So, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you, and you will eat the Eseb of the field. Now we're getting somewhere. Now, when you compare Genesis 2.5, which we just read, and 3.18, they are, are nearly identical, including the phrase, plants of the field, or Eseb of the field. So now we know that thorns and thistles in Genesis 3.18 are synonymous with the shrubs or the siak of the field and so now both siak it shall grow for you and you will eat the eseb of the field that's genesis 3 18 and this is fascinating this means that when god first created man here we go i am so envious there were no thorns and thistles did you know that there were no thorns and thistles in his original creation. Well, why? Because there was no sin or fallenness. We can now finally say what any gardener or farmer or homeowner tasked with caring for a lawn has longed to say that thorns and thistles are an aberration. They're a transgression and an unnatural product of the fall of man. Who in here is a big fan of thorns and thistles? Anybody? Because I will pray over you and cast that demon out of you. But what? Yeah. It also means, verse 18, there were no herbs of the field. Now, what is the plant of the field? Or what is the aesop of the field? What is reference to those kinds of plants which are the product of what? Man's cultivating the ground, tilling the soil. He goes to what? They too didn't exist until after Adam's sin. And just what are they? Well, we're going to put the pieces of the puzzle of Genesis together this morning, and we're going to see what they tell us. So, again, Genesis 3.18, it says, And you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat the east of the field. So we know this is something that we what? We eat. Okay? Look at verse 17. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat all of it the days of your life. And look at verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate or till the ground from which he was taken. Now we know it's something we eat and it comes after the fall of man and from the ground that man cultivates or tills. Now look at verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. And so it is, the plant of the field is bread. And bread is made out of plants or the Eseb. And what is the plant of the field that makes bread? Eseb says it's very clear, barley, oats, wheat, any cultivated grain that you make bread out of. That was not in the original Garden of Eden. Okay? 
So after the fall, man is going to sweat, tilling the ground to bring forth crops, including any kind of grain that makes up bread. Now just think about what life was like for Adam and Eve before the fall. In the pre-fall world in the Garden of Eden, there weren't any cultivated fields. There weren't any cultivated fields. Adam didn't till the ground. Yeah, you're awake and, and most of you are awake. Yeah, this is pretty interesting, isn't it? There weren't rows of dirt and planting seeds to grow crops. But how did they grow? What does day three tell us? The plants and the trees, the fruits, have what? Seeds in them, so they reproduce themselves, and the earth produces. Now we know after the fall, earth doesn't really produce that much. But it produced so much, there was such an abundance, that Adam and Eve did not have to labor for food. It would be like if this were a pre-fault world. We would go outside and just pick the vegetables and fruits. There would be such an abundance out there. And I'm just giving you a, a brief picture this morning, because we'll go in more in depth next week. But that's what life was like for them. In the original garden, there was a flourishing of everything that man could ever want to eat in varieties that were probably beyond his description. And the earth brought forth everything of its own accord. And there were no thorns, there were no thistles, and the plants that are used to make bread, they weren't there, which means there were no carbs. I say it in a joking way. Since there was no death, right? They obviously did not eat meat. The meat of animals. Adam and Eve simply ate fruits and vegetables. Now, if that sounds disgusting to you, keep in mind that in the pre-fall environment, what would that stuff taste like? Right? We can artificially grow pumpkins to be what? How many big? I mean, can you imagine it, it, in that environment of the earth really producing? Because we never know that. We've never experienced that. What it would be like, what it would taste like. And that's just shrubs and plants. Now, let's talk about rain because this passage also teaches us some lessons about rain. Okay? In verse 5, when the story of man begins, there was no rain, okay? There was no weeds, there were no crops, and no man to till the soil. When the rain comes, it causes weeds to grow. And when we get to verse 6, we find more confusion, but we learn more about rain. It says, but a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. And as I mentioned earlier, there is the idea that there was some kind of evaporation coming off the ground and watering the earth. But when we look more directly into the original Hebrew text, we will find that that's a, you get a completely different picture. Because the original Hebrew says this, you ready? But the waters of the deep went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. This doesn't convey the idea of a mist, does it? And in fact, you'll notice a marginal note in some of your Bibles that may use the word flow. 
what it means is a spring. It literally means that something means something that gushes up out of the ground. So the whole earth was watered not by rain coming down, but by water coming up from springs, literally covering the ground. So obviously we're talking about a high water table. I know what that's like. When we bought our home in Concord, Ohio, when I was assistant pastor at Kirtland Christian Fellowship, um, we noticed that the backyard was kind of soggy, and some of the other neighbors' yards were soggy. Well, we had a very high water table. Part of the basement had water in all the time, so we had to install these French drains to dry it out and, and push the water away. But there was a summer when it got very dry. But that backyard was green. It was green. And so you have these springs, and obviously a high water table, but it wasn't just one spring, but a flow of water rising from below, watering the whole surface of the ground of the whole earth. Now imagine all of the marvelous plants and trees made on day three that from the very beginning have literally been saturated with water that was in a constant subterranean upward spring. They must have been breathtaking to see. We get a, a, a brief glimpse of that with the rains and the budding of trees in the spring when there's abundant water. And what happens when that goes away? It becomes dull and it withers. That didn't exist in the Garden of Eden. Everything was always well watered. Which means, by the way, in the original creation, there were no deserts. Why do I say that? Because water was what? Coming up and watering everything. The food that these plants and trees produced, it must have been beyond delicious. So the idea here is water flowing up, watering the ground, then flowing back down into these, these subterranean basins or sources before cycling back up again to water the earth. This was the original water cycle, the hydrological cycle. There was no water cycle that we're accustomed to. Water evaporating to the clouds, the clouds moving over the land, then dropping water. And that water then goes into what? The lakes and streams and rivers and seas, then moves again. That's the hydrological, the water cycle that we know that didn't exist in the original creation. And look, this certainly fits verse 10. Look at chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 10. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it divided and became four rivers. So once again, we find a spring-fed river literally gushing up out of the ground in the Garden of Eden and is in such an abundant source of water, it creates a river that literally covers the entire garden and then it divides to become four rivers. So in the original creation, we can now say that the whole world of plants and trees did not receive any water from above. They received water from below. But what is also important is in the pre-fall world, the ability of the earth to produce flourishing plants and trees, it was never dependent upon rain. As it is today. And as we know, 
Not so much here, but we do note here, rain can be inconsistent. I mean, we know what it's like to live during a drought. Famine always follows a drought. And this tells us something more about rain, namely that it is a judgment. Think about it. It was a judgment for sin when it came the first time. The worldwide flood. It was a judgment in the form of drought with all its accompanying consequences. Turn to Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And it's a judgment in one of two ways. It's a judgment of a blessing. It's a judgment in the form of a curse or a discipline. Look at Deuteronomy 11, verses 13 through 17. It shall come about if you listen obediently to my commandments. This is God speaking to the people of Israel, which I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. This is why I came up and interrupted the worship. This is how you, you love him. You serve him with everything you have. That he will give you what? The rain for your land in its season, the early and late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and oil. He will give grass in your fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. And that only comes, all that only comes if there is a consistent supply of water. Verse 16, beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will what? Shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain. So now rain obviously now is not coming from below, it's coming from above. He's going to shut the heavens, rain won't come, the ground will not yield its fruit and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord has given you. It is the unpredictability of rain that gives God the right to give it or hold it back according to his will. That didn't exist in the garden. It probably didn't exist even in that first society. But I remind you one more time, it wasn't that way in the original garden. There was no unpredictability. There was a constant, think about this, a constant, unending, subterranean, spring-fed circulation of water that literally covered the face of the earth. It caused everything to have unbroken continuity in a perfect water system. There was no randomness, no dependence upon wind. It wasn't something that God had to regulate as a blessing or a curse because there was only perfection and sinlessness in his original creation. Imagine never having to annually untangle hoses because it's time to water your lawn or garden. If you don't, the grass and plants will wither, and what comes up? Weeds. And what are the weeds? Thorns and thistles. I made that mistake. We bought our new home up in Lakeland Hills in 2017, had that, that sod that was laid down, and it was nice and green, and we had plenty of rain, and then we watered it that first year, and it was great. I didn't want to lose this nice lawn, and then for some reason, probably because of cost, I decided not to water the back lawn the following summer. And I have been trying to recover from that mistake ever since then. That back lawn got overtaken by clover, thistle, all of that. I talked to Roger about it, and he said, Chris, clover's tough. Yeah, 
you go, don't waste your money. Go to the store, hardware store, whatever. This weed killer, it kills the weeds, not the grass. That is a lie. This stuff doesn't work. It doesn't work. You've got to pay tr- True Green. They've got the film that it works. But we still have weeds in our backyard. In the front, not as much because it's well watered. The Garden of Eden and the original earth, they must have been something to see. And see, here's the thing. Noah knew the beauty of the original garden or the original creation. A lush garden-like environment. When he stepped off the ark after the flood onto a new earth, he stepped into a new water system. Think about that. Imagine for the first time seeing drought. He and his family passed on to future generations what life was like before the flood. Did you know that? Look, we know this because roughly 500 years later, and now he's, Noah's passed away, Lot says this. Turn to Genesis 13.10. Genesis 13.10. This is when Abraham and Lot decided to go their separate ways. And he says, you choose. Lot, you choose where you want to go. And in verse 10 of chapter 13 says this, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, which is referring to what? The garden of Eden. It was like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So when Lot saw well watered Jordan, he knew that that's what was in the garden of Eden. A land that was just saturated with water and was lush, full of life and productivity. Noah and his family obviously remembered that in their shock as they adjusted to a new water cycle, a new earth, and they passed that on. So 500 years later, Lot remembers this. If you know anything about the Nile River, even today, it, it annually overflows its banks. It drowns all the Egyptian delta in water. And that's always been a source of flourishing productivity for that nation. And so we do have today kind of a post-fall picture of what it was like in Eden. And all over the world before the fall, water everywhere, covering the ground, providing lush vegetation. Now knowing this, again, can you imagine how painful the transition must have been for Adam and Eve, when they began to live life outside the garden in a fallen world. Again, Casuto writes this, Man would have continued to enjoy these conditions that I've described to you had he remained free from sin. But when he transgressed, the Lord punished him by decreeing that the soil should obtain its moisture from above so he might discipline man according to his deeds. Giving him rain in its season if he was worthy, and withholding it if he was not worthy. Now let's talk about the goodness of God. We're going to stay in the Garden of Eden. We're going to take a brief look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, and the temptation of Eve. And I want to just expose, if you didn't know already, the strategy Satan used to deceive Eve. It's laid out for us in Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, and we're going to end here in a few minutes, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of 
of the garden. Obviously, we don't have time to do a deep look in this verse, but in short, Satan's strategy is this. First thing he does, number one, is he questions the word of God. Indeed, as God said. And we know that Adam, that the, that the decree was given to Adam. He passed it on to Eve by Eve's response. But the first thing Satan does is he, he forces you or he tempts you to question the word of God. The second thing is when you question the word of God, ultimately you question the character of the person who gave the command. So you're questioning the character of God. And that leads to the third point. What characteristic of God was brought into question for Eve? The answer is his goodness. And yet, as God said, you can't have this. God had created a paradise. The defining characteristic of the original creation in the Garden of Eden is summed up in one word. It was perfection. God had repeatedly said his creation was good. I told you, good meaning that there was no sin, thus there was no death. And after the pinnacle of his creation is completed, man, God said it's very good. And over the past months, including this morning, we've gotten a small picture of what perfection God's original creation was like before the fall of man. It was a place overflowing with life, abundant vegetation, Capable of reproduction. That's day three. Abundant life in the form of birds and fish and all, all kinds of varieties capable of reproduction. That's day five. Abundant land animals capable of reproduction. That's the first half of day six. In the apex of his creation, man, made in his image, he too capable of reproducing life-giving image bearers. It was a place with an abundant and consistent water supply to feed the plants and the trees and the birds and the fish and the land animals. This means there was no thirst in the paradise God created. It was a place overflowing with food, a variety of vegetables and fruit beyond the capabilities of man's imagination. Let me give you some perspective on this. Today, according to the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations, there are 1,097 types of vegetables and around 2,000 types of fruit worldwide. Did you know that? And this is from a fallen, cursed earth. How many types of vegetables and fruits were in existence back in the garden of God? Well, if you factor in the decay and death of, the, of life that sin brought into the world... And that we are discovering new fruits even today. It's a safe guess that in an environment where there was no decay and no death hindering the produce of the land. There were no weeds competing for nutrients and water. And that the earth produced everything of its own accord. Then to state that there was more fruits and vegetables in existence back then than today is probably pretty reasonable. And I, I, I can't imagine how much better they tasted. Again, the quality of the vegetables and fruit. Imagine eating fruit that is not subject to the curse of Adam. Riper, sweeter, filled with more nutrients than we could ever dream of anything tasting. 
There were no weeds battling for the nutrients that came up from the ground. Man did not tire in the Garden of Eden because the earth gave freely in its produce. He was not toiling by the sweat of his brow, so his labor was minimal. This is why there was no rest, a day of rest for man. He didn't need it. He wasn't laboring and breaking a sweat. He was not a farmer doing the back-breaking work of tilling the soil, cleaning out unwanted growth that competes with crops, planting seeds, and making sure it's water and then, watered and then reaping. He simply tended to the garden. We'll get into this next week. But it means he basically was a gardener. He pruned branches and leaves. He was living in a temperate environment, unclothed, meaning that his body was not exerting energy to keep himself warm or cool. He was not living in fear, having to protect himself and his family from wild, meat-eating animals. He was not living in fear, having to protect himself from, from wicked men or violent men seeking to kill him or his family. Instead, he only knew perpetual peace. I don't know what that's like. Their child could go outside if they had children in that, in that environment and play without their, their, their domesticated pet could be a lion or a cobra. So that is the context of Genesis 3, 1, before the fall of man. And what is so egregious about the sin of Adam and Eve is one was deceived by a lie, that's Eve, that brought into question God's goodness with all evidence to the contrary surrounding her. She was in a place of unbelievable abundance, and all she could see was what she didn't have. Does that sound familiar? You ever suffer from that? And Adam, the other, he willingly followed his wayward wife into sin. See, she could not see God's abundance because of the deception and the lie, and he simply didn't care about God's abundance. And so we've just taken a brief look, scratch the surface of what life was like in the Garden of Eden, a place of perfection and abundance. It's more than anything man needed to thrive for eternity. Not live, but even just thrive. Because he was called to thrive. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And it's clear that from the beginning, God never desired that man be in want. In other words, the kind intention of God's will is that no man be poor. That's what it was supposed to be like what it was like, and what those two idiots <laughs> forfeited. And there are only two that got to experience that. And because God is good by nature, he is overwhelmingly and abundantly generous. This is what we learned this morning. Tomorrow, next Sunday, we will talk about the Garden of Eden in greater depth, its location, 
all of where we think it was. It's hard to find out exactly where it is. But it was a place that was just teeming with life and, and full of abundance. And I said this before, I'll say it again, I said it in Sunday school. Just to give you guys some hope. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, right now, from the day you were born until the day you die, this is as much of hell as you're ever going to experience. If you think this is good, you have settled way too low. What awaits you, we have a, a brief picture here. Amen? Now, conversely, and this is the, the challenge and the motivation, if you are an unbeliever, this is as good as it gets. Because you never get the garden, and it only gets worse for you. And is that what you want for the people that are your neighbors and family and whatever? People in other countries that don't know the Lord, is that what you want? I would hope not. This is why we share the hope that we have. And so this is why I want you to, again, very appropriately, praise God for his goodness. That's why we chose that first song. Amen? Let's, let's stand and sing. We'll close this song. And you can go enjoy the Super Bowl. Or if you're not watching Super Bowl, you can make me something and bring it to my house. I'll eat it. For sure. <laughs> stand with me. And how do we worship God? Give some energy behind it, right? With everything we have. Because you're going to go back to that garden. That's what it'll be like for you. All right? A place of abundance. Praise the Lord. Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you that you don't desire that any man or woman be in want. It's the reality of life after the fall, but we know what our future holds. Our destiny is to be in abundance, to be blessed, and to have our inheritance, which is you. And all God's people said, amen.